this morning we're talking about joy, and you know we were already kind of talking about that during our time of worship, about the joy of the Lord. But uh, one of the things I want to start by talking about are expectations. So have you ever had an expectation about how something would go? Maybe it was at a job you were getting, you expected the job to be a certain way, and or maybe it was like a relationship with somebody, you expected a person to be kind of a certain way, and then uh, maybe they weren't, or maybe the job wasn't that way, and uh, it didn't happen like what you expected. Have you ever had that kind of thing happen? Yeah. Um, they call that unmet expectations, right? I know that's a big term in counseling because a lot of people deal with that. So what are some of the problems that we can have with unmet expectations in our life? What do you think? Disappointment? Anger? Frustration? Sadness, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the Human Psychology Online magazine published an article about the danger. Get that word. They said about the danger. That was in the title of unmet expectations, the danger of expectations and their effect on our joy or happiness. Because they said that expectations shape and bend our reality. Wow, pretty powerful. Expectations, they said, can change your life emotionally and physically. Our minds are constantly jumping to conclusions about the world we live in and who we are. And when we look to the things we expect as our source of joy, we can find that it can kill our joy. And in the article, it listed several different, uh, many reasons why uh, expectations can be joy killers or happiness killers. And I, and I thought, well, we don't need to re review all of them, but here's the top three things I think apply for what we're talking about today. One of them is an expectation that life should be fair. Life should be fair, because why that's not a good expectation to have is because it is not. I don't know if you found this out yet or if you're still waiting to find it out, but not to like, not to spoil it, not a spoiler here. Hopefully you already know this already. It is not fair. Um, expecting that you'll never have to deal with hardships or difficulties and that everything that happens to you will be fair sets you up for a joy killer uh, and not being able to cope with it. Here's another one of the uh, expectations that are joy killers. Everyone should like me. Everyone should like me. Well, while that might be true, everyone should like us, guess what? They won't and they don't. And um, just like you don't like everyone, right? <laughs> Think of, there are some people in your lives you'd just really rather not be around, right? So, I mean, so anyway, there's just different personalities and until people uh, understand that we're all children of God and we all are a blessing. Um, you know, it's it's hard for people to to understand that they should really like people. <laughs> um, here's here's the last one I'll share from that list, that long list. I must always do well, and you know you, that you always have to do well. You always have to be successful. No failures allowed, right? Well, um, here's what. This, they said is a, a typical comment about that. If I do not attain these goals, if I fail to live up to my expectations, I'm a miserable failure and I deserve the worst. That is not good thinking, right? And 
that's going to like, if you think about things that way, you're going to beat yourself down. You're going to not like yourself. You're going to have really poor self-esteem because that is not a good expectation to have. Um, our joy needs to be in the Lord, not in these expectations. Our joy needs to be in the Lord God and in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And today, as we look at the scripture, we're going to look at how our joy can be in the Lord. So if you have your Bibles there or want to grab one in the row, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 today, the first 13 verses. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. <clears throat> so when we start out this passage, God it has God talking to Samuel, and he says, How long are you going to be upset about Saul, who I rejected king over Israel? And Samuel had been mourning the fact that Saul uh, went against God's word. Saul had been disobedient, and he's no longer being used by God to lead the people. So this upset Samuel. He is very, very concerned. He's mourning. He's grieving. Because when a leader is supposed to be a godly person and they compromise their faith, when they disobey God, it is a sad time. It's very sad. I mean, think of the pastors and leaders who have fallen and sinned against God. It's a terrible thing. And it not only affects them, but it affects all those around them. When Saul disobeyed, it would have to have affected those troops that were following him. 
And uh, when they saw the disobedience, seeing Saul stray from God, I'm sure it affected a lot of them and it affected Samuel as well. Because our sin, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We reap the consequences for us and for those around us. Samuel was grieved because of Saul's sin and also because of the consequences for the whole nation because of what Saul did. There was a time for grief over the sin. There was a time for that. And then God said, now get up and fill your horn with oil. And this was a horn from a ram that was filled with oil. I want to show you an example of this. They have horns like this that they use in Israel, or they did back then, and um, some are even longer. And they, the, the, when they blow the shofar, it had special meaning. But some of them, they would fill with oil. And can you imagine this horn, you know, they would stop up one end and fill it with oil. Can you imagine pouring all that oil on the top of David's head? That would have been a lot of oil. And not like that little dot you get on at church here. If we were to do this, though, it would go down all over. And, you know, that would be a problem for some people then, too. So, But this example of pouring the oil out um, when they would anoint people is kind of like what God's talking about with the Holy Spirit being poured out on us, saturating us with the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of a cool um, picture of the Holy Spirit. So God says, fill your horn with oil and go to Bethlehem. There comes a time when we've been grieving um, a problem, an unmet expectation, when we need then at that point to focus on what, what uh, not to focus anymore on what happened. You know, that can be quite overwhelming. And if we focus on what happened in our job or what happened in the ministry or what happened with a relationship, uh, whatever's gone wrong, we, we keep ourselves from moving forward. And God says, okay, now it's time. So we need to be listening to God when he says, it's time to move forward. It's time to move on and do what I have next for you. Because if we live with that crushed expectation, we chain ourselves to the past and we can't move forward to what God has for us next. For Samuel... Moving forward with God was to go to Bethlehem and to find Jesse and his sons and anoint one of them as the next king of Israel. It tells us uh, in the scripture that Jesse had seven sons and two daughters. Now, who is Jesse? Jesse is the grandson of Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth in the Bible? And they had the son Obed. Obed's son is Jesse. So Jesse is the grandson of Ruth. Uh, 1 Chronicles 2, 13 and 15 tell us who the great-grandkids are. Jesse was the father of Eliab, the firstborn. The second son was Abinadab. The third, Shemia. The fourth, Nathaniel. The fifth, Radai. The sixth, Ozam. And the seventh, David. Their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. Zeruiah's three sons were you know, these other guys. So anyway, um, so that's who the family is. And obviously, God said, bring, have him bring his sons. And they brought all of them. Uh, the Shimia is also translated as Shama. So that's who that is there. So then God tells Samuel, well, go and find Jesse, 
and invite him to come. And Samuel says, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, what if Saul finds out? Oh my goodness, the current king, what if Saul finds out? He'll kill me. So why was Samuel afraid that Saul, if he found out that he'd kill him? What do you think? He'd be in trouble. Saul thought he was the king for now. Yeah, yeah. He might be jealous and he might be in a rage and there'd be poor consequences. Yeah, because normally a king, a new king is not anointed until the old king has died. So Saul's still in the prime of things, he thinks, I'm sure. And so if all of a sudden he hears, oh, yeah, Samuel went over here and he anointed a new king, there's going to be some trouble <laughs> because that's not how, how things were normally done. I mean, think of this past year. Queen Elizabeth died. Um, King Charles was not anointed before she died, even though she was really sick, right? They, in fact, they waited for a mourning period. And then after that, they had the ceremony. And in the ceremony, if you were watching any part of it, they put screens up around him. They had him take off his uh, robes and, and, every, and his coat and just be there in this shirt. And they, they said they slathered him with the anointing oil. So they still do this with anointing oil in England. They anoint the new king or the new queen. God told Samuel, take an offering with you. You know, here's the thing. If, if, Sam, if Saul hears he went and offered a heifer, he's probably not thinking what was he doing over in Bethlehem. He thinks, oh, he went to do an offering. So he brings this heifer with him, and then he invites Jesse and the elders along with him to the sacrifice. Now, this offering that it would have been is a purification from sin, much like when Jesus died on the cross for us, his sacrifice, his death provided purification for us, for our sins. And here's the verse in the Old Testament that talks about the offering. Numbers 19, uh, 2, and four, 2 through 4 says, The requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, that has never been under a yoke, and give it to Eliezer the priest. It's to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eliezer the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And while he watches the heifers to be burned, it's hide flesh, blood, and intestines. The whole animal was sacrificed. And then jump to verse 9, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonial clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for the purification from sin. So that's kind of meaningful too, isn't it? That there's been all this disobedience and, and he's taking, Samuel's taking this heifer to sacrifice it for the purification of sin. And to purify them as they come before the Lord, he, it says he consecrated all of them. Uh, God gave Samuel just enough details here to start. He didn't tell him the whole thing. He didn't say who he was going to anoint. He just said, just go, and I'll show you what to do. And he obeyed the first instruction. And then he found out more. So in our lives, we have situations like this too, right? We, we have times when God will lead us to do something 
and we feel like we must obey. We, we follow. We don't see the whole picture. We just need to follow the part we know, and then God will reveal more and more as we go. Uh, kind of rolling back the scroll, opening the scroll of what he has for us to do. When God called us to start this church, we didn't see the whole picture of what it was going to be like. We just had to step out in faith, and God showed us the steps to take along the way. He just said, go. He actually did say go, right? Yes. So I'd just like to ask you a question. Think about that a moment. What area in your life have you had to step out in faith and just follow God? Just a general area. Anyone want to share? Uh, one, one or two words? Surrendering all. Yeah. Moving. Going on a mission trip. Yeah. So we all can relate to this. We've all had experiences where God said, step out in faith, and you don't know all the details. And you don't understand, okay, I only know this much. I'd kind of like to know this much, God. But God says, you know, you just need to obey me on this part. And I will continually reveal the rest as you go, as you follow me. So God tells Samuel, you're going to anoint the one I show you. I'll show you. The one I indicate. So Samuel did what God said. He followed what God told him, even though he didn't know everything. I mean, think about last week in chapter 15. Samuel gave Saul the word of what to do in the battle, and it was very specific. Would you agree? Like, do this, 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 and this. He had the whole picture, and it says, but Saul didn't obey. He thought, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. But Samuel here, even though he only has this much of the picture, of the big picture, he says, I'm going to do it. And he stepped out, and he went to Bethlehem, and he found the, the family of Jesse, and he kept doing what God was showing him. You know, much of the trouble we have in life could be avoided if we would just do what God says, if we would just follow what he puts on our heart to do. Um, we would still have struggles in life, okay? We'd still have struggles, but when we're following Jesus and doing what he says, he will reveal what we need to do to get through all of those struggles, uh, we don't have to wonder how it's going to happen. We just need to trust in Jesus. When we're disobedient, when we're outside, you know, we've talked about how we're under the umbrella of God's protection when we're obedient to him. When we step out from that, then we can't know, is God going to help me or not? Because we're distance ourselves by being disobedient or sinful or, or not wanting to follow what he's showing us to do. We could avoid all of these unnecessary problems that we get into when we step out by staying with what God is showing us to do. So Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, and the elders of the town come out, and, you know, around the, the towns there were city gates, and the elders would stand in the gate, and so they were there, and when he came up to the town, they met him, and they're like, uh-oh, what's he coming for? So why do you think the elders were afraid? They didn't know the purpose of the visit. Yeah. And why that would be important is he had a reputation 
and a position of being the high priest and the judge of Israel. And so they know he's, he's passed uh, judgments. And they're like thinking, uh-oh, what did somebody here do? What's going on? And they, and they say, are you coming in peace? They were a little worried. It says they were kind of shaken there a little bit. They were a little worried. And they must have just sighed in relief when Samuel said, yes, I come in peace. I've come to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And then Samuel invites them to come along. So they must have thought, oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, we can come. And uh, they sanctified themselves. He consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites all of them to come to the sacrifice. So off they go to offer the sacrifice. Samuel, Jesse, his sons, and the elders. So once this is done, um, when they arrive, it says Samuel looks at the eldest, Eliab, whose name means God is father. And, and he's a tall, handsome man. And, and Samuel thinks, surely this is the one. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. So why would he think that? What do you think? Saul was tall and handsome. Like, well, here's the next tall, handsome guy. The surely this is the guy, right? <laughs> so, um, but God tells him, look, that was Saul. This is now, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. I'm not looking how cool this guy is or how tall he is or how handsome. I'm looking at his heart. And that should be reassuring to us in our relationship with God too, right? We don't have to be tall enough or short enough. We don't have to be good looking enough or relevant or cool or smart enough. We don't have to be extra. We just need to be surrendered to God and to his will. And our hearts need to be seeking after him. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is what God wants of us, that we seek him with all of our hearts and our souls. Psalm 28, 7, David wrote, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Hopefully that's what we were doing today. Maybe our hearts were leaping for joy, and with our hearts and our songs we were praising him. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our heart. See, Saul, uh, Paul is saying here, you know what? I'm not trying to please everybody. I, I want you to receive the gospel. I want you to grow in your faith. But I'm actually playing to an audience of one. I am wanting to please God because he tests our hearts. I want my heart to be right before God. You know, the world would have us think that we need to look a certain way, dress a certain way, use all the right words. But those are all external things. Uh, God says it's about our hearts. Being obedient, seeking him above all else, to desire God's will for our lives. If your life, is about curating a certain image, trying to be all of those external things, you know, to look right, to talk right, to write all that stuff. That's a real joy killer. 
Because why? You're never going to be satisfied that you've accomplished it. Fashions change. What's in style changes. The right words change. You know, the cool, hip words change. That cool, hip is probably not in style anymore either. And you'll always think you have to do more, to be more, and to have more. You will never be satisfied. You will be running after the wind. Our joy needs to be in the Lord God, in our obedience to him. As we follow Jesus, we need to make him be the center of our lives. We will then experience joy. Sometimes we think we know what God will do. Like Samuel was pretty sure which son it was going to be. Uh, We have certain expectations, but God says, I need you to let those go. I need you to trust me because what I have for you is so much more. So much better. So Eliab isn't the one God's chosen, and neither is Abinadab or Shammah or any of the sons that Jesse has pass in front of him. And then, the, you know, the last guy goes, and Samuel is like, well, wait a minute. God didn't say yes to any of these. Do you, don't you have any more sons? Do you have any more sons? And, and Jesse says, well, um, yeah, there's still the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. So in Jesse's mind, all these fully grown sons were the good ones. The little guy, who wasn't that old yet, he's out with the sheep. Surely it couldn't be him. And uh, he's just a kid. So they didn't even invite him to come. They just left him out there. Well, Samuel says, uh, send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. And what they mean by this is they're not going to sit down to eat until David arrives. So they had to go get him from the field, and that would have taken some time. And to find him in the fields and have him come back to the place of sacrifice, and it says they waited for him. Well, he must have run, because in verse 12 it tells us he was glowing with health. So I'm thinking he's running because Samuel wants to see him, and he's... He's, you know, he's, he thinks, wow, something good's about to happen. He ran all the way there. His face was just glowing with health. And it said he had a fine appearance and handsome features. So he's not an ugly kid. He's, he's a good-looking guy, too. You know, it's all good. But that's not what God saw in David. What God saw in David was his heart. And as he's running to join them, as he's coming to join them, His heart must have been open to whatever God had for him. God saw that heart that sought after him. David was a worshiper. We see this all through the Psalms. He worshiped God. When he was out with the sheep, he's he's worshiping God, praising him. And he writes psalms of praise to the Lord. In Psalm 27, 8, it says, My heart says of you, Lord, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 86, 12, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. David's heart was right. He wanted all God had for him. He loved God. He worshiped him every day. And he took the time while he was out there watching those little sheep run around and graze to praise God. And he saw in that thing with the sheep, he saw how we are with God, our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So God says, this is the one. 
Samuel, this is the one. Anoint, rise up and anoint him. So that tells me he was sitting down. He wasn't just standing the whole time. But they hadn't eaten yet. So he said, rise up and anoint him. So he took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And it tells us when he anointed him that the spirit of the Lord came on him powerfully. And all through his life, you see the spirit of the Lord coming powerfully on David. Then it tells us Saul left and he went back home. He went back home to Ramah because he had done what God asked him to do. So at the beginning, I told you that we we're going to talk about how can we have the joy of the Lord in our lives. And this passage gives us some clues to that. The first thing is don't become obsessed with failure. At the beginning of this chapter, Samuel's just pretty focused on the fact that, you know, oh man, there's problems around. Saul had washed out and there was no clear answer for how God was going to fix that right then. And he got into this time of mourning. He saw the failures and he was upset. But it doesn't say that he's crying out to God and asking God for the answer. When there's problems around us, we can, we can get into our own heads. When there's problems in our life, get into our own heads and start going around and around about what's wrong and what's not working out. And uh, how in the world can I fix this? Or how in the world can anyone fix this? We can let that go on in our heads. That's when we really need to get into the Bible and read what God says. We need to maybe read the Psalms or read a passage in the New Testament about Jesus. But as we seek God, he will direct us to the right passages of Scripture. And then we need to pray about that issue and ask God to help us move forward into what he has. Ask Jesus to show us the way to go and ask him to break off any obsession with the failure and give us thoughts instead that are his thoughts, that are good thoughts. Ethel reminded me of a passage the other day, and I'm going to quote that right now, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's what God wants us to focus on. Not the problems, not the failures. This is just part of life. It's going to happen. What he says is don't focus on that. Focus on me. Think about the good things, the, the powerful things that I can do. Think about admiral things. Think about noble things. Think about the truth. And where better to find truth than in God's word? So what we need to do to have joy in our lives is to not be not become obsessed with failure, and secondly, to keep your focus on what God shows you. Not your own expectations. Ask God to show it to you through his eyes. Because when we spend time with God, when we spend time reading the Bible and listening to what he puts on our heart, and when we ask him to show us how he sees the situation, he'll do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll show us how he sees it. And then we can have the peace and we can have the joy that we need. It can be difficult sometimes to keep our eyes on the right things. So when you find that you're focused on, on problems and externals and circumstances, take a moment and ask God to give you the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says, The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person 
person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ so what that means is as we're looking at things as we're seeing things and you know we all like look at stuff and have an opinion and have a thought about it what he's saying is that what you want to do is have the mind of Christ ask God to give you his thoughts his mind to be able to see what's going on around you the Holy Spirit can give us the wisdom of the Lord. And James tells us, the book of James in the New Testament says, if you don't have wisdom, just ask. We can ask God when we're in the middle of a tough time. We can say, God, I need your wisdom on this. I want to focus on how you see this, and I need your wisdom. He can lead us. The Holy Spirit can lead us to see things through God's perspective. So the third thing is to saturate yourself in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us with the power of God. And the Bible tells us he's a guide and a teacher. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We'll have the joy of the Lord in us when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, along with his peace, his love, his kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, all of the rest. But the one that we're talking about today is the joy. And just like that song before the service, um, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We'll have strength. And where that comes from, Nehemiah was encouraging the people of Israel. Remember in the book of Nehemiah, Jerusalem had been was in ruins. And he went back to help build it up. He had permission from the king that he served in another country, came back, rebuilt it. And the people had some struggles. It wasn't easy. There were some people out here, out away from Jerusalem, that decided it was going to be their task to try and beat these people down and make them feel like they were nothing, that they were stupid to even try to start that project. And they were going to say and do as much as they could to stop it. And Nehemiah said, went and talked to God, and he said to them, to the people, hey, I know you're disappointed. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So let's have our joy not be in expectations, not be in what's happening around us, but in the Lord. To look to Jesus each day for the way forward and ask God to give us his strength his spirit, his joy. Please stand with me as we close. To have the joy of the Lord in your life, um, you first have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So just ask that you bow your head. And if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive your sins, to set you free from a sinful life, if you wish to surrender your life to Jesus Christ today, just raise your hand. Thank you. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you're filled with all the fullness of God, everything he intends for you to have, so that you can live in peace, in joy, and in righteousness, just raise your hand. Thank you. So not looking around now, just lift your hands before the Lord and surrender your life to the Lord God and ask him to pour out his joy on you today.
Lord God, as we're standing here with our hands up toward you, Lord God, I pray you would pour your oil of joy on us, just like Samuel anointed David with that horn filled with oil. Lord, we want all you have for us, not just a little dot, but everything, Lord. Just pour out your joy. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Saturate us with all that you have for us, Lord God. We just thank you that we don't have to live our life in unmet expectations. We can live our life with our focus on you, with us looking to you for what to do next, to move forward, to not be looking at everything around us, but to focus on you for our joy. We thank you, Lord God, for everything you have for us. We thank you that we, even in the middle of a tough time, a difficult time, a sad time, you still can fill us with your joy. And we just give you thanks and praise for that. In Jesus' name, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.